All right. Well, happy Easter to everybody. Want to welcome uh, everybody joining us across all of our physical locations. Anybody tuning in online, I know we have a number of people that are on spring break right now, and we are trying to think happy thoughts about you, but uh, we uh, are really super thankful that technology connects us together. And uh, man, can I just say that uh, this is the fullest this room has been in a long time. And... Um, it's just pretty amazing. And I uh, just want to thank you for being here today, especially if this is your first time. Uh, we're thrilled uh, that you are here. And uh, I want to encourage you, if you have a Bible or maybe a device with a Bible on it, uh, to find John 21. John chapter 21 is where we're going to spend our time together today. And uh, I think that most of you would probably agree with me when I say that uh, not all words in the English language carry the same amount of emotional weight. Uh, that's why when you're talking to somebody that you really love and care about, maybe you're in a really meaningful conversation, you choose your words carefully because some words carry more emotional weight than others. And so it's with that in mind that I'm just kind of curious today uh, if uh, there is some sort of strong emotional response that this word invokes for you, the word failure. I just want to know, like, is there maybe a memory? Is there an experience? Is there an emotion? Maybe even a sensation that is connected to that word. Now, I, as I was preparing for this message, I uh, Googled failure, and I was just trying to find out as much as I could about this word, and I found one of these graphs. Uh, no, this is not an increase of cases and variants. All right, <laughs> we're sick of that. Uh, this is actually um, a graph um, about the usage of the word failure dating all the way back to 1800. I don't know what it is. I just find this stuff fascinating. But you can see since 1800, just a steady increase uh, usage of the word failure to its peak right up here. And then about 20, 30 years ago, we started to use it less and less. I just find that interesting. And I, I can understand why. Failure is not really a fun word. It's not really a word that any of us want to be associated with or described as. I mean, just the sound of it, like failure, just sounds so final. Uh, when I was uh, 16, uh, I turned, my 16th birthday was on a Friday. And uh, I invited a bunch of friends over to my house that night. Uh, we were going to have some pizza, watch some movies, spend the night. And I went to go get my driver's test the day I turned 16. I don't know how many of you are like me, but I couldn't wait to get it. And uh, I not only invited all my friends over that night, I told them, hey, once I get my driver's license, I'll come pick all of you up. You know where this story's going, don't you? And uh, I did pretty well on the driver's test. I even nailed the parallel parking, which I was really, really nervous about. What tripped me up though, was when we came to a red light and the instructor very calmly uh, told me to turn left. And for the life of me, I could not remember if you could make a left turn after a stop at a red light or if it was supposed to be a right turn. I couldn't remember. And so I gambled. I mean, it, it made it, he, he made it sound like he wanted me to go. There was nobody coming. I looked left, I looked right. I was just like, well, okay, here we go. And so I ventured out in the intersection. I turned left and his head kind of popped up and he was like, was that a red light? And I so badly wanted to lie, but I didn't. I, I told him the truth and, and he said, that's what I thought. He made a little mark on his clipboard and then he proceeded to give me some more directions. And uh, pretty soon I realized he was guiding us back to the DMV, which was so annoying, right? It's just like, just go ahead and tell me, man. And, uh, but he didn't, he took us back to the DMV. We pulled into the parking lot and then he looked at me and he said the words that just kind of struck me right to my 16 year old soul. 
You failed. And it just felt so final. I mean, I had to like wait all weekend to go retest. I had to call my friends like, hey, I can't come and pick you up. Now, it's one thing to experience a failure like that. In fact, I, I would say that many of us would probably even go, and this is where, in my Google search of failure, I saw this all over the place, all kinds of inspirational quotes around failure. You want to know what was at the top? Michael Jordan. He was like, I have missed almost 9,000 shots in my career. I've lost almost 300 games. 26 times I've been trusted to take the game-winning shot, and I've missed. I have failed over and over and over. Don't you feel so sorry for him? <laughs> and he goes, but that is why I succeed. Oh, man, that's so inspirational. And yet, why is it at times when we experience failure, it doesn't feel that inspirational? Many of you listening to this right now that have a little bit of age and experience under your belt, you, you might even go as far as to say, hey, failure's not a bad thing. Like failure is when we learn and grow and mature the most. We got to fail forward. And I would agree with you. I'd say, in fact, if I, I'd be suspicious of anybody who hasn't experienced very much failure in their life because failure is the way that you grow for sure. Well, I'll just get that out on the table. But I think all of us would agree that there is a very real difference between experiencing failure and feeling like one. That's a different thing. And here's the confusing thing in the culture in which we live is if you slip up and fail, the culture pounces. You slip up and fail, maybe other people around you, they, they say things that just feel so condemning to your soul. All of us are gonna fail. Nobody should feel like a failure. And I think that's been one of the things that's been so challenging about this past year is that uh, all of us, I really do believe, are giving it our best, we're trying as hard as we can, and yet maybe it just feels, you just have this like feeling of failure. Like I, I'm, I'm giving in all this effort and it doesn't feel like I'm accomplishing what it is I want to accomplish. And it's not that you don't care, like you care. You love that person, you love your job, you love what's, what's happening, but, but you're putting in all this effort and it doesn't feel like you're getting anywhere. And so maybe I'm just wondering if there's anybody that feels a little bit like I have over the past year, maybe you just kind of feel like a failure at work. Feel like a failure as a husband, feel like a failure as a wife, feel like you're failing your kids. And it's just this like kind of dark cloud of discouragement that's hanging over you. Can I just go ahead and get it on the table that you are not alone and that you're in good company with a whole bunch of other people in that same struggle. And we can really relate to the guy that I wanna talk about today that Jesus has a conversation with at a beach right after Resurrection Sunday. His name is Peter. Now, I love Peter because Peter wears his emotions on his sleeve. Peter is bold. Peter would be an eight on the Enneagram. Like he is a uh, bold kind of a guy. He's like, he's like, I'm calling shotgun. You know, and it's like, that's the kind of Peter that we were talking about. This is the kind of guy that we, we have. And, and Peter was a fisherman and Jesus called him out of that profession uh, to follow him full time. And um, Peter was like always the first to volunteer, which is why it sort of uh, knocked him off balance when Jesus gathers the disciples and Peter around him the night before his arrest and crucifixion. And he tells them that all of them are going to betray him. They're all going to bail on him. And Peter uh, would have none of it. In fact, listen to how Mark records it. Peter said to Jesus, well, Jesus, <laughs> like you need to know, even if everyone else deserts you, I never will. And you know what? I think Peter meant it. I think Peter thought that was true. He's like, man, there's no way. I can't even imagine a scenario that even if everyone else bailed, I never will. And Jesus replied to him, 
I tell you the truth, Peter. This very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny three times that you even know me. And in typical Peter fashion, he would have none of it. Emphatically, he says, no. Even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. Now, John tells us that, like, right after this, in the Garden of Gethsemane, that the Roman soldiers come to arrest Jesus. And that's when Peter would have been on guard. Like, Peter's like, well, this has to be the scenario where I might, if I'm going to deny him, this would be it. Like these guys have shown up in force. And so Peter overreacts and there's a Roman soldier by the name of Malchus who steps forward to arrest Jesus. And, and maybe some of you remember the story. Peter draws his sword and swings at him. And my opinion, I think he missed. Because I don't think he was aiming for his ear. <laughs> I think he's probably aiming for something a little more vital. But he misses and he hits the ear. And instead of a chest bump and an attaboy from Jesus... Jesus is annoyed with him. And he's like, Peter, don't do that. Stop, put your sword away. And he reaches down, takes the ear, slaps it onto Malchus's head like a Lego block. And just imagine if you're Malchus, he's, he's got to arrest Jesus after that. And um, I think that knocked Peter off balance. And we come uh, to verse 15 of John chapter 18. It says that Simon Peter followed Jesus, so he's been arrested as did another of the disciples. Uh, this would be John, by the way. John has this habit of talking about himself in the third person. It's, it's, it's hilarious. And uh, he's got a competitive thing going on with Peter. You'll, you'll see it in the passage. He said that other disciple was acquainted with the high priest. So he was allowed to enter the high priest's courtyard with Jesus. Peter had to stay outside the gate. Then the disciple who knew the high priest, that would be John, he knows the bouncer, all right? He spoke to the woman watching at the gate and she let Peter in, all right? So Peter comes into the courtyard and then um, this woman asks him this question. You're not one of that man's disciples, are you? Now, just the way that this question is phrased, it would, makes it impossible to say yes. This is kind of like, you know, you're not gonna eat all that are you? Well, it was until you asked the question that way. You know, you're not going to watch that whole series on Netflix and sit on the couch all day, all you? Well, it crossed my mind. And the woman says, you're not one of his disciples, are you? See, this is like the woman didn't have a sword. She wasn't coming at it. It was just a very innocent question. And Peter says, no, I am not. And then John goes on to explain this scene. And I want you to visualize it with me. It says, they're in the courtyard, it's, it's, it's after dark, and it says, because it was cold, the household servants and the guards had made a charcoal fire. And they, they stood around it, warming themselves, and Peter stood with them, warming himself. Now you need to understand that Jesus has been ushered away, he's, been, he's being tried unfairly. And John says, while all that's happening, meanwhile, as Simon Peter was standing by the fire, warming himself, they asked him again, you're not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it, number two, saying, no, I'm not. But one of the household slaves of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, didn't I see you out there in the olive grove with Jesus? I love that. The guy's like, man, I never forget a face, especially the face of the guy who cut off my cousin's ear. <laughs> and again, Peter denied it. And immediately, a rooster crowed. 
Now, the way that John kind of describes the three denials makes it sound somewhat casual. You know, it's like kind of a casual question. Don't you know him? No, I don't. Kind of somewhat passive. But the way that Mark describes all this, Mark says that Peter gets so flustered and so emotional that he curses at his denial. In other words, it's almost a way for him to say, would a disciple of Jesus talk like this? And it says right after that third denial in the rooster crowed, suddenly Jesus' words flashed through Peter's mind. In quotes, before the rooster crows twice, you'll deny three times that you even know me. And this is the moment that I want you to feel. Peter breaks down and wept. That's the moment. Not only had he failed, he felt like a failure. And I'm just wondering if there's anybody listening to this and you can resonate. Now, you, you haven't like denied Jesus three times. But maybe you denied him by the way that you live. Maybe you denied him by your words and your actions. Maybe you've been trying really hard, but things have fallen apart. Maybe that thing that you've been trying to keep hidden has eventually come to the surface. Maybe your marriage has fallen apart. Maybe that, that addiction that you thought you had beat has raised its ugly head once again. Here, here, regardless of whatever your failure is, that's not even really all that important. The, the question is, what do you do with it? What do you do with your failures in life? Have you ever wondered like, how am I ever going to come back from this? Like my reputation is ruined. I don't know that I can show my face with that group of people. I don't know that anybody, I'm not, my, I broke the trust of my spouse. I don't know how I'm ever going to get that back. You know what I think? The interaction or the conversation that Peter thought about in this moment, I think was, it's one recorded in Matthew 16, where Jesus gathers Peter and the other disciples around him. And he, he says, say, who do people say that I am? And they say, well, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And Jesus says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter's the first one to answer. And he goes, oh man, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus looks at him and he says, Peter, you're a rock. And upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. Meaning, if you go to the book of Acts, Peter's all over it. Jesus uses Peter in an incredible way to establish the church. He preaches the paint off the walls in Acts and 3,000 people respond to Jesus. That's what Jesus is referring to. <laughs> I think that immediately Peter looked at John. He's like, hey, did you hear what he said about me? You're the disciple Jesus loves. I'm the rock. I'll take it. And I think he walked with a little bit of a swag in his step after that. Here's what I think went down when the rooster crowed. Is that Peter thought about that conversation. And he thought, some rock I am. I don't know that I'll ever be able to show my face in Jerusalem ever again. Um, I'll never preach another sermon ever again. I guess I'll just go back to fishing. Uh, church history tells us that every time a rooster would crow, Peter would tear up because it, it had a strong emotional connection for him. It reminded him of his failure. The question is, how do you come back from that? The question is, what do you do with that? With that inner critic, those words of condemnation, people that won't ever let you live your past down. Well, in John chapter 20, he tells us that 
the tomb is empty, that Jesus is resurrected. This is what Easter is all about. And afterwards, Jesus appears to the disciples. But you, you got to know that Jesus and Peter are going to come face to face once uh, again. Because um, Luke tells us that they made eye contact across the flames of that charcoal fire in the courtyard. Question is, when they make eye contact once again, how's that conversation going to go down? I mean, are they just going to like bump into each other on the streets of Jerusalem after the resurrection? That'd be kind of awkward. Hey, Pete. How's it going? Hey, JC. <laughs> but see, that's not how it went down. Peter actually wasn't anywhere near Jerusalem. He couldn't show his face there. You don't want to know where he was. He was at the Sea of Galilee. In fact, John tells us this. It says, later Jesus appeared again to the disciples beside the Sea of Galilee. Well, um, the Sea of Galilee was 70 miles away. If you were to go there today and travel from Jerusalem to the Sea of Galilee, it'd be a two and a half hour bus ride. Which tells me that Jesus didn't just casually bump into Peter afterwards. Jesus pursued him. Jesus went out of his way to have a conversation with Peter. And Peter's gone back to fishing. He and the disciples are out. They're, they're fishing through the night. They, they hadn't caught anything. Je, uh, if you read the passage yourself, it, it'll tell you that, that Jesus shows up and he says, hey man, cast your nets to the other side. And they catch a whole bunch of fish. That's reminiscent of when Jesus called Peter into ministry to begin with. And I want to pick this up in verse 7. Then the disciple Jesus loved, <laughs> that's John, said to Peter, it's the Lord. They're in the boat. They're like, it's the Lord. We recognize him. He's on the shore. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his tunic for he had stripped for work, didn't want to get his clothes wet, jumped into the water and headed to shore. The others stayed with the boat and pulled the loaded net to the shore for they were only about a hundred yards from the shore. I love this is that Peter, in typical Peter fashion, jumps into the water to swim to Jesus. It's only like a hundred yard swim. And verse nine, when they got there, I love this scene. They found breakfast waiting for them. Fish cooking over a charcoal fire and some bread. Bring some of the fish you've just caught, Jesus said. Now the word for charcoal is only used twice in the New Testament. This word for charcoal was mentioned by the fire that they made in the courtyard in the darkness of that evil night when Peter denied Jesus three times. And now it is mentioned again in the new morning of brand new possibilities. The first is marked by failure. The second is marked by grace. What's happening here? Jesus is recreating the moment to bring Peter back from failure. And it says, after breakfast on the beach, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied, you know I love you. Then feed my lambs. Translation, you'll be a rock again. Jesus repeated the question. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Then take care of my sheep. A third time he asked, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt that Jesus asked the question a third time. He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, then feed my sheep. Well, what's going on here? Well, I think maybe the obvious connection is there was three questions of denial. And now there's three questions of reinstatement. Jesus is going one by one through these. 
And he's giving Peter an opportunity to come back from failure. But it says that, that Peter was hurt. Well, why, why would he be hurt? Well, one interesting thing is sort of lost on us uh, in the English translation is that we just have like kind of like one word for love. And so it says, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? But in the original languages, Jesus is using a different word for love that Peter responds with. So in the original languages, Jesus says to Peter, Peter, do you agapao me? And agapao was a love defined by reason and intellect. It's like the noblest kind of love. And Peter responds with, well, I phileo you, which means uh, a love of just feeling. It was a lesser uh, form of love. So in other words, he's like, hey, Peter, do you agapao me? He's like, why well, phileo you? It's kind of like this. Hey, guys, how many of you have ever worked up the nerve to tell that special girl that you love her for the first time? So you're all nervous. Your palms are sweaty. You're in the car. You're like, I love you. And she responds, thank you. <laughs> it's kind of like that. Not exactly the response you were looking for. And I think the reason why Peter responds this way is because he felt like he couldn't respond with agapao. It's like, I don't deserve it. Like Jesus, clearly, I, 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 I denied you three times. I, I don't know that I'm worthy to agapao you. I think that's what he's saying. And Jesus is drawing it out of him. Jesus is bringing him back from his failure over a charcoal fire. Now, I don't know what it is about a fire that just stimulates great conversation. Wouldn't you agree with that? And we have people come over to our house and oftentimes like after dinner or whatever, we'll just say, hey, do you just want to go in the backyard and sit around the fire? I, I've been with groups of men where we'll just sit around the fire and guys who will oftentimes just kind of clam up and not share any emotions, they'll just spill it around a campfire. And so I'm wondering, it's very intentional that Jesus built a fire on a beach. And it's one of my favorite interactions that Jesus has because of this reason. It shows the heart of our heavenly father. I don't know if any of you feel like me, but there are times, I mean, I've grown up in church and I've been a Christ follower for as long as I can remember. And yet even then, there are these moments when I know that God loves me. I'm just not sure if he likes me because I've failed so many times. I've made so many commitments that I've broken. I just keep falling short over and over again. And there's so many people that feel like the Bible is a rule book. It's all these rules and regulations. And if you can just get your act cleaned up and, and cross all your T's and dot all your I's, then, then maybe God might receive you. But the heart of our Heavenly Father is a God who goes 70 miles out of his way to build a fire on a beach to make breakfast for a man who betrayed him. Who could do nothing for him in return. But he wanted to bring him back from his failure. So if Peter was sitting around a fire with you today, what do you think he would say? How do you think he would encourage us? So I think most definitely he would encourage us. I think he might say a couple things. We, we know this because... Um, he wrote a little tiny letter at the end of the New Testament called 1 Peter. And in 1 Peter chapter 5, he writes these words. He says, hey, stay alert. I think he would encourage us with that. I think one of the reasons why this last year has been so hard is that it's shown all of us that we have a very real enemy coming after our marriages, our relationships, our mental health, our emotions. He wants to wreck our lives. And Peter, I think, would say, hey, man, stay 
alert. If you think you can't fail, think again. We are all just one or two decisions away from stupid. I think he would also say, um, stand firm. Uh, any of you ever teach a little kid, maybe it's your own child or maybe your grandchild to walk and they're just toddling around and they fall down. How many of you ever respond with, just stay down? <laughs> no, what, what's the initial reaction? We go, come on, get back up. Come on, get back up. You can do it again. And, and I think there are so many of us that have fallen and the world says, stay down. And we even think to ourselves, that's what God wants us to do. He just wants us to stay down. Jesus, by his spirit, just beckons us to stand up. Somebody needs to hear this today. Get up. Get up. Your failure doesn't define you. I think another... I think another thing that Peter would encourage us with is that he would say, hey, listen, the way that you fail forward is by recognizing that in the midst of failure, it, it reveals some things. In fact, it, it's a test of sorts. It reveals where you'd been putting your trust all along. See, here's the thing. I think that when Jesus said, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And he said, no, I won't. I'll die with you before that happens. I think that he meant it. The challenge is, is that he was trusting too much in his own willpower. He was trusting in too much of his own identity. And then that got stripped from him. And he realized, I've been putting my trust in the wrong things. And so when things get tested, it reveals really the substance of where you'd been putting your trust all along. I, I was reading an article this last week about a dating website. And on their form, as you go on there to fill it out, they have this question. And the question is, are you a genius? <laughs> Imagine that. And five out of 10 people of a certain gender, <laughs> men, answered and said yes. Well, now that you bring it up, I do happen to be a genius. You know, statistically, only one out of a thousand of us can say that. Do you know what that means? That means that five out of 10 men genuinely believe they are one out of a thousand. That's what that means. <laughs> now, why would they say that? Now, I think, it's, I think it's because they've never been tested, all right? And I think if there was a follow-up question on the form, like, are you a genius? Yes. Well, what test have you taken? I think most of those men would say, well, you see, there's this triangle game at Cracker Barrel. <laughs> and on a relatively consistent basis, two pegs. All right, two pegs. I think that tells you all you need to know. <laughs> See, when times of testing come, that's when things get revealed. And this is where I think that many of us have found ourselves over this past pandemic year that has been so hard. And maybe some of the things that we had previously been putting our trust or our confidence in, what's happened is, is that they have proven to be not so stable after all. And that is incredibly disorienting. And maybe the things that we had put our identity in have fallen apart. And I think the natural reaction for any of us when we fail or experience failure is to feel ashamed or to feel shame. And we don't know what to do with it, so we hide. And we think, well, if people really knew this about me, they would reject me. And so you make sure nobody knows. Or maybe it leaks and other people do know. And we've, have you just noticed how mean we are to each other? 
Like especially online, where we just like take these shots at each other and tell each other to stay down. But see, here's the thing that I want you to hear and to feel loud and clearly today on this Resurrection Sunday, is that Jesus Christ came into this world to bring us back from our failure. That's why he came. The Bible, the Bible is not a story about God accepting good people. It's a story about God forgiving bad people. God, the Bible is not a story about God just affirming where we are, but coming around us and saying, let me restore you to what you could be. See, we are as undeserving as we could possibly be of his love and his grace and his mercy. But those things are exactly what he came to give us. And Jesus knew exactly what he would find in the human heart. Jesus was not surprised at all at Peter's denial. He predicted it. You know what else he predicted? Peter's restoration. You can read about that in Luke. He, he didn't, none of it surprised him. Jesus didn't show up on earth 2,000 years ago and send a message back to God and say, whoa, it is way worse than we thought. Send reinforcements. He knew exactly what he would find in the human heart and that's precisely why it came. And I get heartbroken every time I read this comment online or every time I hear somebody say, well, the Bible's just a rule book, it's just you know, designed to kind of keep us away from God or it's just a bunch of holier than thou Christians who are just kind of looking down. That just breaks my heart because that is not the message of God's word at all. The message of God's word says, hey, listen, you are not too far gone. And there is a God who has paid it all. He's done all the heavy lifting. You just need to respond. Uh, several years ago, I read about this uh, Bible translator in Papua New Guinea who was translating the Bible into the language of a remote village that had never had the Bible before. And so it was a monumental project. And this guy gets done translating the whole Bible. And the day comes for them to pass out all these Bibles to the villagers. Now, these Bibles were um, printed on these really thin pieces of paper. Most Bibles, the, the paper is very, very thin. And so as he's going to hand out these Bibles, there was a man that uh, comes up out of the crowd. And it was very clear that he was smoking something or on something. And he said through the translator, I just want you to know that I'm really not interested in the Bible for what it says. I'm interested in the Bible for all those pages because they would make really good smoking paper. He thought I could just kind of line it with whatever I want to smoke and wrap it and that's why I want it. And so the Bible translator being quick on his feet said, uh, well, I'd be happy to give you one of these Bibles, but I'll make you a deal. Um, he said, read a page before you smoke a page. So years later at a conference, uh, this man walks up to this Bible translator and he says, hey, uh, I don't know if you remember me or not, but I'm the guy you gave that Bible to all those years ago. And I've since given my life to Christ. I'm one of the leaders in the church in this village. And he said, man, tell me your story. Like what happened? And he goes, well, um, I smoked Matthew. <laughs> and, uh, and then I smoked Mark and then I smoked Luke. And then he said this through tears in his eyes. He said, but I got into the gospel of John and I read, for God so loved the world. And I realized that it was written to me, for God so loved me and I could smoke no longer. Listen, I don't know why you're here today or why you tuned in. Easter typically is the highest attended 
week of the year. And, and I think a lot of that just has to do with this just kind of a cultural holiday. You're spending the day with family and maybe you'll go have lunch together. So, um, you know, you, you thought you were going to Cracker Barrel, but you came here first. Maybe that's why you're here, I don't know. Maybe you're not just typically much of a church person. You're not quite sure that you believe any of this. And I, I just want you to know, I totally get it. And I'm so glad that you're here. And, and I, I just want you to know for anyone who has ever experienced failure or felt like a failure or whoever came to a church and felt like maybe you didn't belong, I just want you to know that there is the wonder of Easter. And the wonder of Easter is simply this. Easter isn't just the recognition of when Jesus was resurrected. It is the declaration that Jesus is resurrection. It's a statement. He walked out of a tomb to give you hope. He, he emptied his grave so that you could lift your head. What that means is he brings dead things back to life. He brings restoration to things that were at one time very, very broken. He turns mourning into dancing, Psalm chapter 30 tells us. He turns hopelessness into hopefulness. He creates four lane highways out of dead end cul-de-sacs. He brings you and me and other people who feel unworthy of it back from failure. Listen to me, there is a reason why our symbol of redemption, restoration and hope is a cross, not a ladder. Jesus didn't say, get to work. Jesus said, it is finished. He did all the heavy lifting on the cross. And so what do we do with our failure? Well, I love how John describes it in, in 1 John chapter one. He says, if we confess our sins, meaning we, we don't harbor them any longer. I, I like to think about it this way, is like, uh, I'm not gonna work the spotlight, I'm gonna step into the light. And many of us just work the spotlight. Just kind of put the light on those areas of our lives that we're okay other people seeing. John says, don't just, just step into the light. And here's what'll happen. God will be faithful and just to forgive and cleanse sins. And then in chapter two, he says, hey, I'm telling you all this so that you won't sin. But if you do, I'm so glad he said that. <laughs> if you do, because we will, we have an advocate. That's the word that he uses to describe Jesus. He's an advocate who pleads our case before the father. So what that means is that every time you slip up, every time you fail, every time you sin, have you ever wondered that? Like maybe some of you were baptized in church camp as growing up as a kid, or maybe you gave your life to Christ before you headed off to college. But since that day, your life's been a mess. And you're kind of like, well, I don't know what to do with that anymore because I've given my life to God, but I've continued to make a mess of things. Here, here's what happens is that Satan and your conscience are making claims of condemnation against you, but Jesus has continued to be your advocate in the courtroom of heaven, pleading his case that the blood of Jesus is there every day, crying out for the acquittal of those for whom he died. So every time you sin, Satan and your conscience and your inner critic kind of rise up again within you and said, see, you're not worthy of this. You're a failure. You sinned again and sin deserves death. And you know what happens? Jesus objects. May I approach the bench? Yes, 
Aaron has failed and he has sinned and sin deserves death. But I already went to the cross and paid for that sin. And so when I was nailed to that cross, Aaron's sin was nailed there with me. And so God, it wouldn't be just for you to punish the same sin twice. So I'm not asking for mercy, I'm demanding justice. Aaron must be forgiven. Listen to me, that happens every time you fail. That happens every time you sin. It's what it means to continue to put your trust in Jesus. It means, it doesn't mean you're not gonna fall. It means get up, get up. You have an advocate with God the Father. And what we are trying to do as a church is we are trying to take that same grace that is demonstrated in the courtroom of heaven and make it a felt reality here on earth. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. In other words, Jesus says, I am not here for people who think they're doing pretty good, but for those who know that they're not enough. And it's called redemption and restoration. It's one of my favorite things. You know, I was in uh, college, I had a buddy who uh, rebuilt wrecked cars as kind of a side gig. So uh, what would happen is that he would uh, fix up a car, drive it for several months. While he was driving it, he'd go buy another wrecked car, fix that one up and then sell them. And he just kind of did that as a part-time job in college. And so every now and then I would go with him to the salvage yard and, and we would just walk through and just look at all these wrecked cars that would likely never see the road ever again. And what would happen is he would pick one out and he would take it, he would rebuild it. And I remember like at times I would be like, I can't even believe this is the same car. I don't know what it is about restoration and redemption of things that have been broken. It's like, I love those like fixer upper shows because I think what's happening is that, that my soul is crying out for that. And yours is as well. The wonder of Easter is that there is a God who loves you so much that he pursued you to earth and he pursues you to your own Sea of Galilee your own beachside conversation. And maybe some of you need to have that today with Jesus. Because he's figuratively speaking, made you a charcoal fire on the beach. What business does he need to do with you today? What conversation would he have? What words of hope would he give? And I think that he would look at us with tenderness and compassion and a moistness in his eyes when he would just say, man, I love you so much. Don't stay down get up. And so the way that we get up, the Bible teaches, is that we just simply stop trusting in ourselves and put our trust in him. It's called belief. We believe that he's God's son. We believe that he died on the cross for our sin. We believe he walked out of a grave. And we believe he's advocating on our, on our behalf. We confess our sins. We stop working the spotlight. We step into the light. We repent which means all repentance is, is, well, my life was heading this way. Instead of making a slight little detour, I'm doing an about face. And then the fourth thing is, is that we're baptized. And baptism is an external picture of what's happening to us internally. That it's our own death, burial, and resurrection. We're identifying with Jesus in that way. We're being lowered into the water as somebody uh, that is an old creation being resurrected as someone new. And, and I love the imagery of baptism. I mean, we've done thousands of baptisms in, over the years and every single time, 
um, it never gets old to look into somebody's eye. I was in that tank last night and we baptized like 20 some odd people last night. It's real. And it's kind of weird. Cause you're like dunking a grown adult in front of other people. And I understand why you would push back against it because it, it, it's intimidating and it feels awkward and weird. And, and I think that the reason why God gave it to us was because we all need something tangible to point to and it confronts our pride. And maybe today, some of you need to do it. Maybe today before your internal attorney can talk you out of it, you just need to step out from where you are. And if you believe, and if you're ready to confess, and if you're ready to do an about face from the direction your life was headed, then you're ready for baptism. You're putting your trust not in yourself and in your own identity and all those things that you were previously leaning your weight against, but you're putting it towards him. And you're taking Jesus up on his offer to come back from failure. And maybe today that's the step you need to take. And listen to me, after your baptism, I hope that you wouldn't sin, but when you do, You have an advocate with God the Father through Jesus Christ pleading your case who says, there is nobody too far gone. There is nobody whose life is too wrecked. There is nobody who is too much of a failure for my grace not to reach. So today, so today somebody's gonna step from darkness to light and we're gonna celebrate. Today, somebody's gonna step out of failure to new beginnings once again. We're, we're, gonna, we're gonna cheer them on. So somebody is going to step from death to life, not because of anything that they do, because it's not a ladder, it's a cross. Jesus has already done the work. We're just simply responding to the advocacy of our heavenly father. And so we're just gonna offer you a time to be baptized. We're gonna celebrate, we're gonna sing at all of our campuses. I'm gonna pray and uh, I'll leave the logistics to each of the campuses up to the campus pastor. Uh, but let me, let me pray for all of us right now. Father, we come to you right now and I'm so thankful for charcoal fires on beaches and conversations in which you declare that failure does not have the final say in any of our lives. And this last year has been so hard and so difficult and many of us feel like a failure. It's not that we failed, it's that we feel like a failure. And I pray that the power of the resurrection would silence that inner critic and the voice of our enemy who wants us to stay down. And God, I pray that there would be somebody who would respond in faith today to the invitation to make Jesus their advocate before God the Father. This doesn't mean they've gotta have all their questions answered. It doesn't mean that they've gotta have their life all cleaned up. It's not the way it works. We come to Jesus with all of our questions and he answers them as we walk with him. We come to Jesus with all of our mess and he cleans us up as we trust in him. And so God, today I pray that there'd be somebody who would respond in faith and we're gonna celebrate it. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.